from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a filmmaker that has taken psychological horror to the fringe of the extreme. His films assault the mind through the context of the existential horror of the human monster. He's joining me today to talk about his new film, Speak No Evil. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Christian Taftrup. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Winston. Thank you for joining me. My fiance and I were looking for a solid psychological horror movie to watch on one of our date nights, and we stumbled upon an absolute landmine with Speak No Evil. So I am looking forward to getting into the devil in the details. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So... I read that you based this movie on a real scenario where you were on holiday in Tuscany and met a friendly but socially awkward couple that you spent some time with. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in 2016, I went on a holiday with my girlfriend and our three-year-old daughter to this very beautiful place in Tuscany where you kind of you know, you go on a holiday for a week or 10 days and you go to a place where you meet other people from around the world. And, you know, there are a lot of kids and great, you know, playgrounds. But the idea is that you socialize, especially in the evening. So the kids are taken care of by babysitters at the place <laughs> and you sit at this long table each night and eat wonderful food and drink great wine. And then you just talk with people that you don't know. And what usually happens is that you kind of become holiday friends. I think it's a term, actually. And by the end of the holiday, you exchange emails or phone numbers. And, you know, you can get an invitation to meet again. And we met a Dutch couple on that trip. And I don't know why, but in Denmark, I'm from Denmark, we kind of have this tendency to socialize very well with people from the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we remind a little bit about each other when we meet, you know, English people or Swedish people or French people on holiday. I mean, it's okay, but we never had such fun time as we do with the Dutch. And that was what exactly happened on this holiday. <laughs> we had been there a week. It was okay. We met some people from England and so on. But then one day this Dutch family came 
And they were a little bit like us. They also had children, but they were just a little bit more insane, a little bit more, <laughs> you know, crazy. <laughs> and they were a little bit like over the top, but we really, really liked them. But there was also, you know, something creepy about them. And by the last day, we exchanged emails and they invited us to their place in the Netherlands, you know, three or four months after they thought we should come and visit them for a weekend. And I kind of looked at my girlfriend and said, I don't think we should do that. <laughs> and then I came home and I thought, this is actually a pretty funny idea for a film. <laughs> you know, two couples meeting on a holiday, make best friends, and then they see each other again and then things go crazy. <laughs> so it was more like, you know, based on an experience I had, but I added a lot of imagination to it. Like, what if we have went to see them? What would have happened? Mm -hmm. And it, then it just came out as a horror film. <laughs> but there wasn't anything about that couple that maybe keyed you in that possibly anything bad would have happened. It was just purely your imagination? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I really liked him. But again, he was a little bit creepy, maybe. <laughs> or maybe it was just my, you know, imagination. Mm -hmm. And it was also just the idea of, you know, you meet people on a holiday, you make best friends. But it's a very safe place. You mm. small talk a lot. You want to be best friends. You want to show the best versions of yourself. You know, it's only a holiday. But the problem is if you see each other in a more private space, in a private home, especially maybe six months after, it's another situation. Mm. And I thought that was just such a good, simple story for a film. Like you're actually guests at somebody's house. You're absolutely strangers, but you want to stay polite. You think you know them. You have great memories of them. But what would happen if they turned out to be different and maybe not so nice to be around? Would you kind of say no, stop? Would you leave before? Or would you stay, you know, polite and try to keep up appearances instead of speaking your mind? I think that was a very recognizable situation. What happened to you when you are among people you don't know that well? I mean, there's a whole language for small talk. Mm -hmm. That's a very important way of being human. I think so. I mean, you know, you got to trust people. You don't expect the worst of other people, especially not if they remind you of yourself. In the film that he tells the Danish couple in the beginning that he is a doctor, and when somebody says he's a doctor, oh, he's an authority, you know, you immediately trust him. But what if he lied? What if he was not a doctor? And that situation is something that, you know, the film plays around with this matter of trust, of expecting the best of others and expecting the best of yourself. You don't want to be rude. You want these social codex and this language of socialize with each other. You want that to be great because otherwise it would be very, very awkward. And you have this tendency to ignore your intuition, your inner alarms, your, you know, your, the red flags. And I had like, you know, thousands of experiences like that in my life. And this holiday experience just nailed it. And I thought, let's take it all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the things that really kind of gives the movie a fevered pitch eventually is the slow escalation, the whittling away of Bjorn's boundaries. And, you know, in the beginning, the first thing that's pushed on Bjorn is when they're at the pool and Patrick asks Bjorn if he can have his daughter's pool chair. 
So her stuff's on the chair, but she's technically not using it because she's in the pool, but she'll probably use it soon. So it's like this low level annoyance. But Bjorn figures the inconvenience is worth not having to create an awkward situation by saying no. So you mentioned in an interview that your girlfriend is a psychotherapist. Yes. So I was curious, did you collaborate with her at all to develop the specific escalation of events? (laughs) <laughs> well, actually, I did not in the be- not not in the beginning. I wrote this with my brother, and we have a very close collaboration. And we also traveled like this with our parents when we were kids, so we had similar experiences, like staying in people's house with our parents, people we didn't know so well. So we worked quite fast on the script. But what happened when we had like a first draft of the script is that I showed it to my girlfriend and she was actually really clever on the characters. So we had great discussions about the male lead and the female lead. How would a man react? How would a woman react? What is masculinity today? What is to be feminine? What is, you know, the characters, I wanted them to be different and I wanted them to be deep. So I think in the first draft, it was a little bit more, you know, superficial and she really the discussions i had with her made it more psychological interesting so she really really helped me a lot with developing the story and make it more you know deep and with layers and not just so flat as it was in the beginning yeah okay well in the movie patrick is constantly being nice then pushing a boundary then being nice then pushing a boundary back and forth. And it keeps Bjorn and his wife completely off balance. So they don't know if they're in the wrong or not. So I myself have issues with boundaries and actually as a viewer found myself having and experiencing the same uncertainty as Bjorn. Hmm. So I was curious to know, have other people that have seen the movie reported the same feelings? And if so, have you told them to seek help? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing about this film is that it's, you know, it played all over the world and it's a very, very global conflict, a very recognizable human universal conflict. In the beginning, I thought it was a very local film. It's very much based about, you know, being from Scandinavia because we're very polite people, but sometimes we're not that honest to what we really feel or who we really are. And we, you know, we are very ashamed of things and we want to, you know, we just want to be good versions of ourselves all the time. But suddenly I discovered that people in the States or in Asia or in, you know, Southern Europe or even in, you know, Middle East countries really, really connected to the story. And I think it's so universal because we don't want to admit it. You know, when we look at films We are taught that we go through a lot of things and we struggle a lot, but especially in American films, the characters turn out to be hero in the end and suddenly they can fight and, you know, they can do a lot of things that we might romanticize a little bit about the perfect version of a human being. But in real life, we do a lot of stupid things. We do a lot (laughs) of crazy choices that we are not proud of. And I think this recognizability in the movie was something that talked to a lot of people that we all get our boundaries pushed and we all have, you know, recognized the thing about not saying no in time. It's easier, you know, not to say anything, to to turn the blind eye to something. And I really understand that. And when I discussed this theme with my brother, 
we discovered how much we are, you know, especially in the Western civilized societies, how much we are connected to the social codex, civilization, the rules of civilization, and how good we are playing this game. I mean, we learn it from child. If we do something that is not acceptable, you know, don't sit at the table, say something rude in public, our parents will tell us immediately, you know, please, oh, what did you do? So it's on our spine from a very early age. And the thing is that we don't want to be outside the group. We want to belong. And if we are outside the group, we are ashamed of ourselves. So I think that even though people wouldn't admit it and thought the characters are vague or stupid, it is something we all do. And of course, we take this to the extremes in the film, but that is because we want to say something. We want to criticize something. And that's why, in a way, it's a very, very easy, understandable film, but underneath the surface, it deals with, you know, existential human conflicts. Yeah. One of the most spectacular examples of the strategic gaslighting that Patrick and Karen engage in is when they're being confronted about taking Bjorn and Louise's daughter into bed with them where Patrick is sleeping naked and they completely turn the tables with this implied almost ad hominem attack about them not answering the door because they were having sex. Like somehow that makes it okay for a young girl <laughs> to be in bed with a grown naked man. Mm. Mm. So I was curious to know what was the most common comment or feedback you got from people about that scene? We actually didn't get that much feedback from that event. I was afraid, of course, already in the script that people would think it was something sexual because it's not a film about that at all. Mm. They're not abusing her. Uh, but the thing is, as the film goes on, it has to be more and more scary. And the conflict that we play in with the characters, the Danish couple that are the guests in the film, is all the time in all the scenes, are they stepping over my boundaries or is it just, am I really being intimidated or am I just overreacting? Mm -hmm. This dilemma is something that I think we can all recognize. Sometimes we are really being intimidated, but we have this tendency to turn it inwards saying, it's a misunderstanding. I'm also a little bit, you know, and what would I do? And I'm guessed I have to be. And as the film goes along, all these stepping over their boundaries had to be more and more turned up. So this is a point where the female lead, Louisa, want to go home because if somebody, of course, takes your daughter into stranger's bed, it's really crossing the line. Mm -hmm. But the thing is about the Dutch couple, they are extremely good in, in manipulating. So there's a scene coming up after that where they actually, you know, explain why they did it. Mm -hmm. And that was because they didn't listening to the child. She was crying. She was crying for her mother, but they had sex, the Danish couple. Mm -hmm. So they were actually ignoring their own child. So they were just trying to, you know, be good people to her. So all the time the Dutch couple can, you know, turn it around. So they're in their spine. They're being manipulated by people that seem so nice and are so well-spoken, but are actually doing very, very cruel actions. So I think people got out of the seat <laughs> of their chairs. And from that moment on, it's about in the middle of the story. People were very intrigued by it and thought it was getting more and more disturbing. Yeah, when they're giving their rationale for that, that strategic gaslighting, that use of plausible deniability, that scene is what made me wonder 
if you had gotten some sort of technical advice from your girlfriend, because that seems like probably the type of stuff that a psychotherapist would deal with all day is people that manipulate others. Was it in the scene in the kitchen? Yes. Where they kind yes. of discuss. The funny thing is, I think it was the first scene we wrote, my brother and I, and we wrote it before we even wrote the script. It was a very early scene that we also used in the auditions for the actors. And it's really pretty much as the first draft of the scene. But I think the scene was such a key for us for what the film was about. It had all the manipulative effect and all the speaking out your mind, but then you're caught again and people that are twisting your arguments. And, and even though it's a long dialogue scene, we thought it both had something that was extremely disturbing, but also comedy. You know, mm -hmm. it's also a funny scene. So sometimes when you write a film, you have to discover it. You have to discover what is this film actually about. And sometimes it takes years to discover that. But we looked at that scene and every time we thought, The key is in this scene. It's a complex thing we're describing, but it's also a very relatable thing. So we use the scene as a guideline for the rest of the scenes. So it was actually a pretty easy scene to write, but I don't know. It just it became like one of the main, most important scenes for us while we wrote the script. Yeah, I mean, it's even included in the trailer. Today yeah. is going to be a great day. <laughs> like, oh my God, what is this about? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, so you make mention of Bjorn living a life a lot like Henry David Thoreau stated, a man leading a life of quiet desperation, a life of monotony and banality. And he's attracted to the animal magnetism that Patrick embodies. But what he's attracted to, he can't attain, and it ultimately causes his demise. So what was Bjorn's shortcoming? Like, why could he not connect with that wild masculinity he wanted and save his family? Yeah, it's a big question. And this is also the most important thing for us in the movie. Of course, it's a film about, you know, how far will you stretch that politeness and not saying no and speak up and all that. But what it was even more about for me was a couple who lives a very nice, safe life with no big issues. They have a great daughter, a great school. They have money. They live very well, privileged life, but they don't feel anything. They can't really feel themselves anymore. Each other, they're not physical. They only small talk, even with each other after 10 years of marriage or so. And when you do that, I think you're longing for something that are more chaotic and dark and there's a scene in the beginning where he stands in his perfect apartment and he looks into the dark mm -hmm. we all know that feeling and when we meet people that we get attracted to sometimes they're you know the mirror of our darker sides Bjorn, he wants to be like patrick if he could be rude if he could have sex if he could be a little bit psychopathic mm -hmm. if he could you know party like he does <laughs> he falls for this guy not in like a sexual way but as something he wants to achieve. So I think Bjorn especially, he goes on an adventure. They want to go to this place. They need to go to this place. They are actually in the need of somebody pushing their boundaries so they can feel something again. So for me, this story was also very much about somebody who wanted darkness to happen, to feel what it is like to be in very evil, crucial situations. And in the beginning of the film, they're sitting in this perfect garden of Italy, but it's also very superficial. 
It's not authentic in any way. And in the end of the film, they're in this dark countryside with, you know, the most desperate situation you can imagine, but they feel alive. But why he's not really reacting is a main question I had from so many audiences. And some like it and some really are very, very angry at it. And, you know, I think it's also, as I said, something we are taught, especially in American movies, like the American ending to this film would be that suddenly he could fight and he could save his family and they would run from the woods and they would come home and they would have learned something and be stronger. But I had to look at myself, you know, when I fear things, if I meet people that are, you know, I think are bad people or evil, what do I do? And I do two things. I try to smile. I try to be polite and I try to talk my way out of it. And if somebody are threatening me, I try to find a little bit of humanity in the evil person, because I think if I can make friends with him, he might let me go. And Bjorn is a guy that never experienced any evil in his life, not in a great way. I mean, maybe he lost his daughter at a playground or had an argument with his wife or anything, but he never, never experienced to be threatened on his life. And when he do that, when he's suddenly in that situation, he does not know how to handle it. I mean, you have this phrase you say about, you know, some people, they, when they meet danger, some people fight, some people run, and some people freeze. Mm -hmm. And this is very much about a Western couple that freezes, that can't even believe that this is happening. They really meet some superpowers. So I think Bjorn is really thinking, if I just do as I'm told, they're going to let me go. That is the only hope they have. And I was thinking a lot about this story that I heard from the, you know, the Second World War where, you know, the victims were digging their own grave and the Nazis were standing there with guns and said, if you're just digging the grave nicely, we might let you go. And then they, of course, shot them in the end. So you want to believe in the good. Mm -hmm. And that's your only weapon. So for us, the main theme was actually, how do we react if we meet evil in our life, if we don't know it? Are we actually permitting it ourselves? Do we have the tools to fight it? How are we raised in this part of the world? So there's a point for me that he cannot react. There's a key moment where Patrick is actually leaving the car to take, like, you know, he's going to pee and the car keys are in the car. And, you know, he has 10 seconds to make that big decision to drive away. But he's scared of the consequences. He's not an action hero. Mm -hmm. He's an anti-hero who lives in a perfect apartment. Mm. And, you know, he has never, never, ever experienced things like this. So this is why he's so passive. And I kind of like that people, even though people were hating it, some people were hating it, they were very angry at me. They had a very physical reaction. I had, I wouldn't say it was death threats, but I, I had a lot of very, very cruel messages on my Facebook about people, especially from men, that was so angry at me that this film existed and that I could describe a man like that that could not protect his family. So, you know, it's really important that this film state these questions and it, yeah, it provoked a lot of people. And I find that very, very interesting. I wonder if it struck those men subconsciously, like those men possibly have never been in that situation themselves. Like there's like this underlying fear that they don't want to acknowledge that's kind of being provoked by what you pose in this movie. Maybe it's like a fear response, this lashing out at you because you're the creator of this film. Yeah, I think it's mixed. I think you're right. But I also got, you know, messages from really tough men from the Middle East and from 
countries that might live with greater fear and wars and conflicts. And I was thinking about why did they get so mad at me? Mm-hmm. But maybe it's because, you know, I come from a very safe place in the world, from Scandinavia, and it's very safe for me to write a story like this. And I think it's just provoked them that, you know, it's easy to make a film where the hero doesn't protect what is most important. I mean, it's important no matter what to fight for your life, to save your kids. And especially in a war, in a country that lives with a lot of fear and threats and killings all the time. And I think how can a film like this exists in a world where you have to fight for what you have dearest in the world? So I think it's a mixed response to it. Also from people that live in places that are not as safe as Scandinavia. Yeah. Yeah. And for those that live in safe places, it's kind of an adverse effect. You know, you get so used to living in a civilized society that you forget that not everybody follows the rules. Exactly. So are there any other adverse effects of living in a civilized society that you've planned on turning into story ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, you, you have your themes and I made three feature films and a lot of short films, but I discovered that I have a voice and I have some themes that I keep coming back to. And of course, I want to challenge myself and push the boundaries and make films that are about something else. But the last three films I made is very much about modern masculinity and about social behavior Mm -hmm. and how that dictates us in a modern world and how far away we came from, you know, our primal instincts and our true nature and you know, the animal inside ourselves and all that, because we don't even know it anymore. Maybe when we are drunk and, you know, (laughs) I really, really big crisis in our life, but at an everyday life basis, we behave very civilized. And I kind of spent three films that are very, very different, but I think this is some of the main themes. And also I'm, you know, in my forties now and beginning of my forties and being a man in Scandinavia, how does a midlife crisis look like? And <laughs> who am I? And, you know, I ask myself more existential questions now. And how is my life? What do I want to achieve? What is my past? And so I thought it's, it's a very recognizable theme for me. But I think, of course, that I also want to change that at some point, maybe to have a female lead. <laughs> mm-hmm. But right now, it is something I'm trying to understand and investigate a little bit to, yeah, to reflect upon modern human beings in in the safe space of, you know, civilization. You were talking about the ending, like especially an American ending, Bjorn would man up, take care of business, save his family, and everything would be good. I read that you did rewrite the movie a few times, and at one point even did write a happy ending, but you never shot it because you said it was so god-awful. <laughs> but I, was, I really want to know, what was that happy ending? What did it look like? Yeah, I can tell you. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, from a very early stage, we had this ending. It looked a little bit different in the previous scripts, but it was a very dark ending with, you know, ending up like this, people getting murdered and all that. And my brother and I really agreed on making the most disturbing film in Danish cinema. That was something (laughs) we really wanted to try. (laughs) But before we kind of really discovered what the film was about, we met a lot of people who did not like the last 20 pages. They really liked it up until things were starting to get really dark. And that was actors coming to castings or did not want to come to castings. 
And it was also a little bit people that has to fund the film that did not, you know, want to go get into the film. And many of them suggested to me that I could change the ending so there would be more hope in it. Mm-hmm. And because you are a nerve wreck when you write and you listen so much to other people and their, you know, comments and feedback, my brother and I decided, okay, then let's try to rewrite it. And then we made an ending where they actually escape from these bad people and they come home and they're just a more happy couple. Mm. I remember we had different endings, but I remember we had an ending where they kind of escaped and they were sitting at some diner uh, near the ferry and they were holding hands. And then another couple came to their table to small talk (laughs) and they said, no, no, we just want to be alone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that, I mean, that could have been an ending, but the thing is, it is another film. It is another premise it was not what we wanted to prove with this premise. We wanted to make the most fatal outcome of not listening to your intuition. I mean, to let it all happen yourself. And because the film is a horror film, you can make it larger than life. It's an elevated genre film. There's a lot of mythology underneath it. You know, it's not a one-to-one realism. So we thought about the film as a fairy tale or we discussed that maybe how would it look like if it was an opera, then we would, you know, blow it up. It would be, you know, nothing that would happen in real life, but in cinema life. And I was very inspired by that, that you could do that in cinema. It doesn't have to be like real life, but it has to be reliable in the genre and it has to be recognizable. So for me, the ending is more like an allegory. It's an image of something on evilness, your reactions to evilness. And if we wanted to keep that ending and that premise, we had to go all the way. So, you know, I just a week or two before we actually had to shoot the film, my brother and I looked at each other and said, remember, we agreed on making a disturbing movie. Let's keep the goddamn original ending. And then everything was just right. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, just before the ultimate climax of the movie, you know, like I said, I watched the movie with my fiance and we were commenting on it the whole way through the subtext and every speculation we made about your underlying theme of the movie was cemented at the end. in that one salient line where Bjorn asked Patrick, why are you doing this? And Patrick says, because you let me. I mean, my girlfriend, my uh, fiance and I have just both like collectively screamed holy shit that's it that was it what we were thinking the entire time so yeah the final takeaway that you wanted to convey at that point was you stated it eloquently just earlier what was it again the consequences yeah of not speaking your mind or listening to your gut feeling Mm -hmm. just let it happen not saying no in time trying to make friends with what you're afraid of because your intuition will tell you to get the hell out of there. Mm. But your civilized appearance would say, oh, it's, let me just do what they say. It's going to be fine. Maybe it's just me. Or if I do what he says, he will let me go. All that, you know, that is what the film criticize. And that's what they don't run away. They are too afraid of it. So, you know, we wanted to have an ending where that was stated in just maybe one line. Mm-hmm. And I was actually doubting and we were cutting it in and out of the movie. But I'm very happy that we kept it in the movie, that two lines because it kind of sums up what we wanted to criticize. And I was a little bit inspired by, you know, I think it's in Funny Games by Michael Haneke. There is a similar 
dialogue, I think, where they ask, why are you doing this? And they say, it's just for fun. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that that I like is that you cannot explain it. People, when you see evilness on film, you want it to be in a very psychological way. And people that saw this film at the test screenings was criticizing me a lot because they thought I should explain why they did it. I mean, in a very naturalistic way, people were suggesting that they were cannibals or that they were thieves or they were in some kind of sect. They wanted to sacrifice them for a god or <laughs> something that I think would make the film extremely flat. So for me, there was just, you know, pure evilness because pure evilness exists in the world. You cannot always explain that. There are many takes on evilness, and this is a more like, you know, existential way that evil exists. And they just, if you let it happen, then it can also develop, you know. You can also prevent evilness to happen if you do it in time. So I wanted to make the film very open, but state that criticism is that you, the good people, are actually allowing it yourself. So who are the bad people? Who are the good people who are creating evilness in the end? So that was something I thought was extremely interesting. Yeah, it reminds me, uh, the name of the movie escapes me. It's a horror movie. I think it's called The Strangers. Okay. But at the end, you know, it's this group of killers that does a home invasion and basically terrorizes this couple and eventually, you know, gets them bound up and is about to kill them. And they ask why they're doing it. And they said, because you were home. <laughs> oh, that's great. I was not aware of that, but I got some comments on, I think also The Strangers and a film called The Vanishing. I don't know if it's the if the same film, but, and also Funny Games. Of course, I knew Funny Games, but sometimes when you make a film, you are in family with other films that kind of dealt with the same theme. And that is because it's true that this exists in the world. And there are not so many stories in the world, if you look at it, but it's the way you twist it and turn it around or make it personal. So I'm always just happy when I discover that all the films kind of deal with the same issues. Yeah, and you stated that this was produced in the throes of COVID. COVID really threw a wrench into the production. And if I read correctly, you filmed in Italy, the Netherlands, and Denmark. Yes. So... What kind of obstacles and restrictions did you have to deal with in those places? Well, you know, I thought the story of the film was a nightmare, but, you know, creating the film was an even <laughs> bigger nightmare. It, it was something that has been very, very exhausting for me and for a long time, almost to an absurd degree. I've been fighting for this film for years and we had nine days of shooting. And then we were shut down. I was in the woods in the Netherlands and we were just told to go home. And in during these nine days, it got even worse. It was back in February 2020. So it was in the beginning of everything mm -hmm. and it was getting worse and worse each day. And nobody knew why we were in the woods and nobody was sick, but we would just ask our government to come home. And so we had to shut down. And I was sitting in my summer house with my family for four months and did not know if I was going to shoot the film, if I was going to make it. And the society at that time, you know, we were all wearing masks and there was no people on the street and you could not do anything. And we were doing absolutely nothing. So I became so depressed. And then we came back to the Netherlands in July, 
but it's a winter film mostly. So we had to change summer into winter. <laughs> and the, the house we were going to shoot in, the man wanted to tear down the house because he only bought the house to tear it down. Mm. So we had to convince him to let it stay. And we had kids in the film. They were obviously growing up. <laughs> and some of the actors were also, you know, not feeling comfortable about traveling and all that. And then we had 10 days of shooting. And then we had to shut down again. And then we had one week where we could go to Italy where the COVID was not so bad. And we did that in September. And then we did some, you know, second unit in December. So it took a year to shoot. And then the film was actually finished one year and, a, and before it opened. And then we got selected for Sundance. And a week before Sundance, Sundance was canceled because uh, of COVID, you know. So yeah. everything has been very you know, fragments <laughs> and exhausting in a mental way. That's why, you know, I have made projects since, but not my own stuff. I had to take a break and, you know, being so passionate about something and then be so afraid that you would succeed or not. So it's been a really weird, nightmarish experience that is also maybe with time a little bit funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Sundance and film festivals in general, can you tell me about the uh, awards and nominations the films received? Yeah, you know, we got to a lot of festivals and I traveled a lot, but I also had this experience that we also got rejected by other festivals, also big festivals. And all the time I had a feeling that they were just about to take it, but that they didn't. And it did not win that many awards. And I think it's because, you know, it's a cruel film mm -hmm. and it's a film that divides the juries and the audiences and Horror is something, I don't know in the States, but in Denmark, horror is a guilty pleasure. It's not the best thing you can make. It will not receive a big number of awards and some people will definitely hate it. But I think if you nail it, then it's such a thrilling genre that you can play around with and also make it a little bit more artistic. So I think we got so many great reviews. I've never experienced having so great reviews and a lot of great feedback from the audience. And I went all over the world. But, you know, at the end of the day, people were also afraid of acknowledging it as, you know, <laughs> a great, great, great film of the year. But, I, you know, it divides people. And I really like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be for everybody. I think if you try to do that with what you make, you will go wrong. People have also left the cinema here. They yelled at me that I should be ashamed of myself. And as I said, I got these death threats by, you know, text messages and also created reactions. And it's definitely here to stay, but not everybody liked it. And in a way, I, I feel pleased about that. Yeah. Well, I could be wrong, but as dark as the movie is, I imagine at some point there was some unintentional or maybe intentional, I don't know, some, uh, some humor so what was the funniest thing that happened during the filming of this movie? Like making it or like, or any, in yeah, like any bloopers, <laughs> any like just weird <laughs> coincidences? Oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's it was a tough film to make. And, but and we were very serious all the time because we had to focus. But I think the experience we had in Italy it was the last thing we did. We actually did the beginning as the last thing. 
And as a Dane or Dutch people coming to Italy, making films with an Italian crew is extremely funny because <laughs> they are far out, wonderful people, uh, but they don't really follow the rules. And for example, if you have to, I remember if you have to shoot in a street in Denmark, you have to apply for that mm -hmm. in good time. You have to, you know, go to the mayor and you have to write a lot and, you know, wait. And here, the way we could shut down the main street in the Italian village is to have a dinner with the mayor and charm him in a way. Mm -hmm. And if you charm him well, he will shut down the street the next day. <laughs> so everything was in a way like, you know, very as you imagine Italians are mm -hmm. and extremely charismatic. And so it was such a fun week. So I remember, you know, sitting at the scene at the long table where Patrick is having his speech. And that is actually a funny moment. This speech in the beginning, Patrick is going up and raising his glass and he has a speech where Bjorn really falls for him. That speech was not something I wrote in the script. Hmm. It's not there. But I had this one idea just before shooting the scene that he should do it. And I whispered in his ears, try to improvise a speech. And then he did that. And that was just an amazing moment mm -hmm. because it's such a key moment for the story. And I couldn't write that. It was something that came up to me in my mind mm -hmm. while doing it. And I think that is something that is important as a director is to keep yourself open while doing it and change it and listening to the story or listening to where the story moves uh, scene by scene and then react to it. So I think that week in Italy with the opera and everything was pure magic and actually something I enjoyed very much, which is not difficult because it's such a beautiful place. Awesome. Well, how did you begin your career as a director? Well, I'm an actor. I always acted since I was a child and did a lot of both theater and films. And I went to theater school just after high school. I was only 20. But parallel to that, I wanted to be a director and I did a lot of short films. And I think it's mainly because I worked at Centroper Film. That is a very famous Danish film company that kind of made a revolution in Danish cinema in the 90s with this dogma movement. You probably know Lars von Trier. Oh, yeah. That's his company. And I was a runner there. I was only 16 and I worked at their office making coffee and copying scripts and all that dirty work. And I was really envying these people. And I got very inspired by the spirit of doing more artistic movies in Denmark. So I started to write there a lot. And I have this dream about becoming like this generation. So after theater school, I started to direct again and slowly I developed a career and make it into three features now. But I still act a lot. So I, I shift between these two things. But, you know, experience this generation in Danish cinema where things actually could happen in a more creative way was something that stayed with me ever since. You and your brother, Mads, is it right? Yeah, that's right. Mads wrote the script and you directed. What other aspects of the film do you get involved in? I mean, I know the director has his hands in pretty much every aspect as far as kind of supervising it. But is there anything else that you do exclusively? Like, do you also edit score or anything like that? Uh, no, I write and I direct. But I think it's a balance because I really like to be involved in all of the process of the phases of creating a film, even though it's very frustrating sometimes, it's the most wonderful work in the world. I mean, you get to sit there alone writing, you get to work with other people, you get to be alone with an editor and then a composer, you get to do all the marketing and the business side of it. It's really funny, all these phases. But I also 
not want to take over. I think one of the key things as a director is to cast the right people, to hire the right people and, you know, inspire them mm. so they can do the best job in the world. So you kind of make a film together. So it's also, you know, to stay a little bit, not in the background, but not speak too much, not try to take over work. Mm. But I'm a director that loves being involved. I'm not a director that's never in the editing room. I'm in the editing room every day, all the time. And also with the sound and I work very close with my composer. And it's just because I have so much love for it, discovering all these things. So I'm pretty much present, but I'm also trying to get the best out of other people. Well, can you tell me about the writing dynamic with you and your brother? Yeah, it's a very great relationship. I mean, we're brothers, so it's <laughs> I'm I'm almost eight years older than him. And we have had very different lives. I've always knew what I wanted to do. And he's been more searching and never thought that we should write to, uh, with each other. But I, the second film I made called A Horrible Woman is based on my own very bad relationships. And the film is how a man can look at a woman and it's how cruel a woman can be to a man. It's, it's <laughs> in a way, it's a comedy, but in mm -hmm. a way it was a very controversial subject especially in 2017 with the Me Too movement, where it kind of got into that debate very easily. But we wrote that film together because he said, I think if you write it, it will be too private. So let me join you. And then he just discovered that he was such a gifted writer. He writes very fast. He has a great ear for dialogue and people. And I'm more, you know, experienced in crafting and all that. So we supply each other very well. And then we wrote Speak No Evil, just, you know, spending time together, talking, discussing, you know, going around, mm -hmm. taking walks for half a year, creating a story. And when you know each other so well, you can say anything. You're not afraid of anything. I can come up with a bad idea and he can tell me and we can rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And we have kids at the same age and all that. So we spend a lot of time. Also, we are at the same faces our lives, even though I'm older. So it's very easy to reflect on how it is to be, you know, in this age we are. So it's definitely something I want to continue with. Also, because it's a little bit harder to write alone. I also do that, but it takes more time. You can't not discuss so much, mm -hmm. of course, with yourself, but it can take three months to solve something. And here you can just speak your mind. And by the same day, your brother can say, no, no, don't go that way. Let's go this way. So we have a lot of fun and are very patient and creative together. Awesome. In an interview, you mentioned that a lot of actors would not even audition for the movie and that even the four actors, the four main actors that ultimately did the film had some issues with the script. So what in particular did they have issues with and how did you as a director assuage their fear? Well, you're right that I was casting the film both in Denmark and in the Netherlands. And I know Danish actors very well because I'm Danish. I did not know any Dutch actors at all. But in Denmark and in the Netherlands, I had some great actors that did not want to come because of the ending. And some of them were doubting it very much. But, you know, there was a certain actor who did not know what he should tell his daughter if he played a villain like Patrick. And I had a certain great Dutch actors that came but wanted to have a talk with me after the audition. And then he had ideas how I should rewrite the ending. So, you know, they were very keen on doing it, but they were also did not want to if I let the film stay as it was. But I think the actors I ended up with 
were actually the most excited actors of the scripts. But Fetcher, who plays Patrick, he told me afterwards that when they read the script, the two Dutch actors are married in real life. He told me that they were actually decided not to go to the audition, <laughs> even though they liked it. But then she said, come on, let's go meet the director. Maybe he's a nice guy. And then they came and I think I convinced them that I was not some total fucked up person. <laughs> <laughs> were they envisioning pure evil? <laughs> yeah. I don't, if you haven't met the person, you can get afraid. <laughs> so I had no problems with them. And I think they backed it up and had great, great ideas for how to do this. So it was a very easy job working with these particularly four actors, but they were very different. The Danish actors has not so much experience in front of a camera. There are theater actors in Denmark did not do films before. And the Dutch actors were, have done films since they were children, I think. So it was also a very different way to work with them, communicate with them. I had to direct the two couples in very different ways. Yeah. So how does that change the dynamic as far as directing two people if they are married? Is that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, uh, we did not discuss that so much. I, uh, I let them do their work and we never really talked about that. I mean, that's their private life. And yeah. I think they're very professional. I mean, they've been in so many movies in the Netherlands and they have been a couple before, I think, in movies, but they were very different. The way of approaching the material was different. And I think there was a chemistry, of course, between them that I could use mm. and a physicality between them, sexuality between them that I thought was extremely great for the part. So I think it was a plus that I, sometimes it could go horribly wrong, you know, but I think here it was a plus for the film that they live their lives together in real life. Well, you mentioned working for Lars Van Trier's production company. I'm assuming you're a fan, right? Oh, yeah, more than a fan. I think I almost was in love with him, you know, when I was a child. <laughs> and, and, you know, and not in a physical way, but I was, of course, extremely inspired by this radical author that really, really tried to challenge cinema and to push boundaries all the time and to be a standout and not to please everybody. And of course, when you're very, very young and you see directors working like that, you get inspired. And there will come a day, and I think I also tried that, where you have to, you know, kill your idols <laughs> <laughs> to find your own voice. Because in the beginning, you maybe try to copy them a little bit and you discover you're not at all like that. So I think, you know, I kind of like the idea of having idols and try to look up to them, but also to you know, to destroy them a little bit, to find yourself. So I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware of being inspired by him. But I think it's a good thing. I mean, he's a master in cinema in Denmark, but he's on a level for himself. So everybody's afraid to copy him because he's so good. So I just think of myself maybe as a wannabe <laughs> and trying to reach his level just a little bit and create something, you know, challenging and divides people. I kind of like that he dares that. He's a very brave director, I think. Which one of his films affected you the most? Well, I think it was Breaking the Waves because that was the film where I decided that I wanted to make films. I was working with Breaking the Waves as, I don't know how you say that in English, but I had to write down time code for the subtitles. And every time there was a new subtitle, I had to write down the new time code. So I saw the film on a very early stage. I think I was 16 
And so I saw the film eight, nine, ten times. <laughs> and I was so affected by it. This craziness, because I've never saw anything like it. In a way, it was very bad taste and like a soap opera. But in another way, it was also art. And it was, you know, trying to push the boundaries for how the camera should work and how you could tell a story. And it was religious and all that. So I thought, how can you make a film like this? Mm. And I remember I decided I want to do that. I want to make a, a film that is a pure masterpiece one day. And so I think that film stayed with me. And I, I haven't rewatched it for a decade, but I think it would have the same effect on me. I was so fascinated by this strange film. And I kind of hope that there would be more films like that. Mm -hmm. Are you a fan of French extremism at all? I don't know what that is. Oh, Julieta Cornell, Gaspar Noé, Pascal Lajou. Ah, yeah. Well, not really. I mean, I like uh, Irreversible a lot, but, you know, many people who saw this film have said, we love it, but we will never see it again. And I <laughs> I had that feeling with Irreversible, but I remember it. But I haven't seen any of our other films, but I remember this film so strongly. I mean, I like that people are consequent, but, you know, this extremeness is also a little bit far away from me. I know this film has extreme scenes. But in a way, I like films that are more subtle and in between lines and where you dispose it a little bit. I like in this film that there is only a little bit of blood, but it's the worst hmm. possible way. I've never been a fan of pure violence in film. I think it's a problem that violence has become entertaining. Like you sit there and eat your popcorn and you're not affected about it. You just laugh about it. I know Tarantino is such a great director, and I agree when he says that violence, it's very cinematic, but in a way, we don't react to it anymore. So in this film, I was just, what if we have one violent scene with minimal blood and people get furious? Oh. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm trying to, you know, challenge that a little bit. So with some of these extreme films, I get a little bit numb. I get a little bit, you know, I don't really care about it. I think uh, people get a bit desensitized. What does that mean? Sorry. Oh, it doesn't affect them as intensely from repeated exposure. Yeah, especially in horror. There are so many brutal horror films. Mm. Like people are getting caught up and blood and it's, I mean, losing all their, you know, <laughs> everything. And, but we're getting used to it. It's a way of telling. Mm. I think it's a little bit harmless. With this film, we were trying to make something that was actually a very realistic take that was intimate that reflected some very ordinary people. I wanted the audience to feel like they were actually up there on the screen in situations they could have been in themselves mm -hmm. because that's scary. Yeah. You know, I'm not scared of blood and, you know, a chainsaw or a ghost or <laughs> supernatural elements. I mean, maybe other people are, but I'm scared of other people and I'm scared of myself. And I think if you can reach that it's even a more horror film than mm -hmm. just something we view to with spinning heads, invasion by aliens and all that. I think it's a little bit old fashioned. Yeah. Well, do you feel anything should be considered taboo in the realm of film? Like there's just some things that are off limits? You know, it's about the way you do it. Mm -hmm. I think art should be very free. And I think you can do whatever you want, but you have to do it in a way where you take responsibility. And you have to do it in a way that is, you know, interesting. 
And if you do that, I think you can get away with almost everything. You cannot just provoke to provoke, or you can, but I don't find that interesting. You can provoke if you have something to say, if you have a premise to prove, or you want to criticize something, something that also has a dualism or, you know, it's not just to be out there in the face. So I don't think that there should be any limits in a way but you should take care about it. You should do it in an intellectual, in a clever way or in a heartful way. And if you do that, I don't think you can go wrong, actually. Well, Christian, it has been fascinating talking with you. Yeah, Vincent, thank you. It was lovely to talk to you about the, the film. Thank you so much. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your viewers know about? Ah, no, not really. Just uh, I want to thank everybody who listens to this and maybe saw this movie or other movies that are radical. I think it's important that movies are not always pleasing us, but also makes us things that make us think and disturbs us. I love when you sit there in the cinema and you see the credits and you cannot stand up from your seat because you're so affected by it. And you think about it the next day and the next day and the next day. I think that's uh, something that cinema should do more. Yeah. Well, all around great film. Great talking to you. Listeners at home, make sure you check this movie out. It's streaming on Shutter, but it is also available through Apple and YouTube. All links will be in the description. And Christian, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>